The rings had not yet been wrought, the elvensmith of Oregion had not yet pondered ambition, and the turning of the age had not yet come to pass. The herald of Monwe stood upon the precipice overlooking the blessed realms of Amon, and to his right stood Olorin, a cohort and companion in servitude to Sulimo, and a friend. From the sunrise arrived an array of great eagles from beyond Valinor, and behind them a hazy mist surmounting the sky. The night has come and passed, and the wrath has been raised, remarked the herald, Ionwe, whose stature was as immense and imposing as his unyielding armor. Yet the ensuing silence is troubling, and the east remains shadowed. The eagles of Manwe still do not canvas those lands. I do not doubt the roots of Morgoth run deep within Middle-earth, affirmed Olorin. And such is no good tiding. The treacherous are ever distrustful. But I am not a stranger to that land. Upon the tufts of Gwehir I have made pilgrimage to it, and walked amongst the Adel. Among the wise there is a great fear of rune, and whatever is at work there. It is with great dismay that the discord sown by Melkor has endured, despite our intervention. Ionwe grieved. And such has ensued great disquiet within me. Upon every whisper of the shadow, I yearn more for the second theme unveiled. Why can it not be so? We must not lose sight that all which has been, and that which will, is ultimately tributary to the anthem of creation. Sometimes one cannot comprehend how such darkness could resolve to tranquility, and I must confess that you are not alone in that feeling. But it is not our part to master all the tides of the world. We must trust in Iluvatar. So they suffer until the one bids the evil stanza complete? Pondered the herald, gazing upwards as the eagles of Manwe soared above them. The sun glinted off their wings, casting a golden glow over the scene as they carried themselves beyond. In the midst of the mullings of the Maiar, so came Manwe, the king of the Valar, clothed in weightless blue robes, and his intense sapphire eyes shone from the depths of his character. The Valar towered over his Maiar, shrouding the rising sun with his figure. Ionwe and Oloran, my faithful servants, said Manwe, his voice ringing with authority and majesty, yet tempered with kindness. Your wisdom is thorough and sagacious, and you are wise to be concerned about the subjects of which you speak. But the shadow that you ponder is dark indeed, for what you speak of is no small matter. Beleriand is sunken, and the Westlands are maimed, Eonwe said solemnly. Nor could the Noldors and the Nandor's strength combined overcome that which stirs in the east. Not when the second children of Iluvatar wage in retaliation. You speak in truth, boomed Manwe. However, our intervention does not end yet. So shall be raised from the sea a rebirth for the second children, crowned by the mortal son of he who sailed Wingalot. For in that of Iluvatar's mind I comprehend. I understand this rebirth shall be a might unlike any other in the West. And the wise among Ziedo will know this. And what becomes of Myron? Questioned Yonwe, in sudden challenge, conjuring shadows and restraining light with the very words. 
The Maya has not yet arisen from wherever he dwells, expounded Monway. And the mantle of Myron he has abandoned, begrudgingly, yes. But nonetheless, Sauron they have named him, for abhorred he is among the Ainur. The shadows lie in wait, furthered Oloran, and in the depths of his hiding he will have had many dark thoughts, and have said many foul things. What then, when he at last reveals his Hroa? wandered Ionwe. Will this shadow ever haunt the east beyond the Black Lands? Not without intervention, affirms the mighty Valar. Sauron ever fears the Valar, yet through us only can he quell that which binds him. And I task this to you, Inwe, the greatest of arms at Ardach, to be an emissary to the east, with Gwaihir as your guide, unearth the abhorred, and bid him return to Valinor to fair trial? Through this may Sauron find the light of the One again. And if he spurns at the thought of returning to Arman, questioned Ionwe, if he rebukes the chance of pardon, then we let him be. Oloran spoke for Monwe, and then he repeated, It is not our place to master all the tides of the world. Whether now or not, there will come a time when Sauron Gorthaur faces judgment, whether at the hands of the Valar or Iluvatar himself, but we cannot force it upon him. As Oloran spoke the final words, a tumultuous wind came from the west, and with it, swiftly, the Windlord, Gwaihir, heir of Thorondor, and he descended upon the company. Gwaihir, spoke Manwe, you must bear way to Middle-earth. Take him to the far stretches of the frozen north, to the temperates of Eriador, and the east, and to the depths of Mordor, until at last the Gorthauer is found. And so Gwaihir would bear him eastwards, into the west of the lands east of the fallen Beleriand, and through dark crevices and dungeons, unearthing all that they could. Yonwe bid Gwaihir take him further east still, into the shadowed lands tempered by the cunning corruption of Morgoth. But among the men Sauron was not, and there none dared speak his name. So at last they came northwards, into the frozen wastes of Foredwyth, and by Ionwe's guidance, to the ruins of Atumno. Sauron was in solitude, away from fear and discomfort, separated from the watchful eyes of the Valar, and confined to his thoughts alone. Seldom would he remove himself from the depths of the dark he endeavored, but in some hours he would wander the desolate, devastated, and damned Atumno. There he would recollect that which had come to pass. He remembered the wrath he, at the right hand of Melkor, ensued, the darkness he had amounted in his lieutenant. And more than anything, he wished to be free of it. And so in his wanderings, by some chance came Ionwe, the banner-bearer of Manwe atop Gwaihir, descended upon the frozen terra of the Forod Waith, and Sauron bowed as sudden fear enveloped him. My friend, came Ionwe's voice, from a visage of the firstborn. You needn't cower. I am not here to unleash any judgment upon you. Understand that once you were Myron, and that you will be so again. I am Myron, said the Maya, the admired and the admirable. Abhorred I am not. 
Yanwe looked with downcast eyes upon him. So you are, and I can see you wish not to be judged nor labelled by that which has come to pass. Do you not regret what darkness and dread you dealt upon Middle-earth? Every hour, every despairing moment in the dark hours of my waiting, I regretted it more than anything else, acknowledged Myra, and pleaded to be absolved from it and free of the burden of my culpability. Such may yet come to pass, consoled Ionwe. But you must also understand and accept that once you were Sauron and acted as so, you cannot run from that truth. I understand, wept Myron, hanging his head even lower before the herald. Ionwe looked upon the Maya with a great pity and sorrow, and so he knelt and offered his hand to Myron's lifting his fair visage onto his souls. Do not weep from that which was, and be grateful for what Manwe has proposed. Manwe? quavered Myron, who now looked away here. What purpose brought you to these ruins? Why have you come here? I am here under Manwe's command, disclosed Ionwe. Lord Sulimo has asked me to retrieve you and bear you back to the Blessed Realm so that you may bow before the Ring of Doom in hope of absolution. Can you not pardon me here? Myron pleaded. You are Chief of the Mire, the Herald and Banner-Bearer of Manwe. Surely you can grant me that which I so dearly and humbly seek. No, asserted Ionwe, turning his gaze to the ruins of the ancient fortress of Morgoth. No, the choice of pardon will be in the hands of the Aratar alone. You know of what they will do to me, contended Myron. They will cast me out and confine me to the void as they did Melkor. Even though I reprimand what I have done, I regret my deeds, I assure you, but do not bid me return to those lands. Manwe is offering you an accord, avowed Ionwe, turning back to face the Maya. A hope of redemption. Standing trial does not admit your banishment. I say again. Once you were Myron, and Myron you shall be again, but you have to amend your deeds as Gorthaur in the lands of the West. Not in Valinor. I assure you I am genuine in my recompense, but I dare not look upon those lands again, even with a remorseful heart. Aule would be in favor of your pardon, beckoned Ionwe suddenly. To him you remain, Myron. Myron then fell to his knees and a helpless realization came over the estranged smith, understanding that he would never know love again, and his cold heart would remain so, and so he wept. A freezing wind roared over the barren landscape, and thunder strangled the gray sky. What have I forsaken? whimpered Myron in anguish. To what end has the discord riven me? Rid yourself from this tumultuous torture, proclaimed Ionwe into the raving snow-filled gale. Come with me, Myron, and confront Sauron Gorthaur at last. But Ionwe's words could not penetrate the storm that Myron had countered, and the weeping figure upon the icy terror was shrouded. Ionwe at first hesitated, knowing that if he had forsaken Myron now, that name may indeed forever be lost. But he could not idle any longer, 
and the chief of the Maiar fled the writhing winds and the distraught Myron, mounting Gwaihir and disappearing into the west. Myron conversely fell back into the depths of the ruins of Atumno, and wept in the dark, far-reaching pits. Myron would not surface for many years, and within those lone hours the hope of recompense fell slowly out of mind, and the land of the west grew silent. And then another realization came to him, for he now understood. The Valar had turned their thoughts away from the land to the east. The Valar had abandoned Middle-earth. The peoples of the land had no one to lead, no Valar to turn to, and Sauron saw the opportunity for him to achieve what he had always sought, to grow his dominion over Middle-earth, and return the land to perfect order in the wake of the War of Wrath, thus saving those ruined lands, and reforming that which had gone to disarray. And so Sauron would at last rise from his dwelling and journey into the shadows of the Black Lands, of which the Edel called Mordor. And there he would conjure a great power in the east, the Black Citadel of Beradur, rising from the ashes of the Land of the Shadow, carved by the cruel hands of Uruks and trolls, and upon the foothills of Doom he gathered the hosts of Mordor, and all of the dark creatures in servitude to himself. Arise! he shouted into the blackened smog his aura conjured. For day unto day you have grown in strength and might, and at the black hand of your lord you shall triumph. The hosts of Sauron Gorthaur answered with warring cries and praise, and Sauron descended from the heights of Orodruin into the heart of their ranks, and his immense cloaked figure walked amongst them, and within the coming black years Mordor grew in strength, and Sauron devised a scheme and so he would journey into the west, cloaked by a fair visage, and he walked unassumed amongst the Adel. And into the heart of Celebrimbor he would emplace himself, and within the forges of Eregion he would enact upon his dark and cruel ploy. Sixteen rings he sought to forge, and sixteen Myrdain were adorned with a delicate, cruel, and beautiful ring. So he returned to the dark reaches of the Black Lands, and to the heights of doom, where in the heart of Mordor he sought to deceive them all. Gorthaur loomed in the heart of Samothnaur, the cracks of doom, breathing in the belches of Orodruin, alone and unarmored, willful and weaponless. He recalled the cosmic choir, arranged long before he was bound to his mortal form. Melodies and tunes beyond count poured their unique orchestrations into a singular symphonic harmony, conducted in the order of the One. The first music had never left his lobes, the arrangement a sight no Ainu could forget. He kept its allure at bay, fearful of reigniting his desire to recreate its experience. In those timeless halls beyond the void, he had stood beside Aule, the inventor whose name embodied invention as he fashioned every note in the symphony with a care only the greatest of smiths held absolute mastery over. In those times he had witnessed the wishes of Barthan, the world artificer, as the elves who never went west would come to call his former master. In those moments he had sensed the desire of Mahal to make, as his creation would refer to him in Kaznul. There was an impatience in Aule, an irritation that was repressed, that he resonated with, a fire that was tempered by his devotion to the One. The cosmic conductor, the divine composer, Eru Iluvatar had created them from his thoughts, as was the nature of creation, yet the creator had imbued his essence in each Ainu, an end of a string that strummed his music. 
In Aule, Eru had incorporated the very desire to fashion things that remained, and in Myron that desire did remain unshaken. And yet, when in that sound there was a great discord, Myron was inspired to imitate the one. The audacity of Melkor to introduce a cacophonous novelty in the music enraptured him unlike any other I knew, and it was not until its manifestation that Myron remained aloof from its draw. Glimmers he had seen ever since, in strands of sunlight bound with shadow, carrying faint reminders of the chaos he could put to order. Akin to what his masters had wrought, he pushed and pulled away from the theater of his fate, a silent scream rising and falling, deciding the course of his destiny. Each time he reached a resolution, a dip would follow to mute the fanfare of his victories as abruptly as the breaking of a string at the climax of a rousing crescendo. Each beginning and ending of his uneven masterpiece was marked with a name that befit who he was in the essence of his schemes. From fair Myron to dark Gorthaur, he howled and screeched and roared his battle cries, defying all fear, until he was silenced into contemplation, to once again design his instruments of deception as delicately as those who resided in Taniquetil. To their judgment he was doomed, kneeling before Ionwe, and a dread overcame him of the silence, and it washed over the words of the herald. Only the resounding voice of Melkor boomed in the cavities of his existence, blood-curdling as the moment when the Valar chained him in the void. It overtook his being with a compulsion to set things into an order none could break, save for Eru who in wisdom remained removed from the throng, unmoved by the song of Sauron the Shunned, or the melancholy of Myron the Moored, names that he wrestled to associate with still. And through this he too remembered the one who taught him the mastery of forgecraft, one whom Myron the admired coveted. For Aule understood Myron's ambition, and took kindly to his heart. What Ionwe said was true. Aule never knew Myron as Sauron. But Aule resisted Myron when his ambition heightened, and held him back from achieving purity. So Myron knew that Aule was not the piece absent from the enigma. And then he pondered that perhaps Melkor was the answer. Rooted in divine rebellion, Myron had observed the acts of Melkor that Aule kept only to himself, as with his master Melkor had conceptualized mountains unshaking, with the flame imperishable at its very center, uncontrolled. When Myron had abandoned the caution of Aule for the courage of Melkor, he had traded order for chaos, even if his intent was bent towards codifying it through the resources of Morgoth. Melkor did not resist Myron, but only aided in his endeavors. At the right hand of Morgoth, Myron had achieved great things. But neither Aale nor Melkor could provide him with what he desired above all, an order over the creation of Eru, in a manner that only Eru could imagine before the symphony had manifested into Arda. For Aale confined him, and Melkor kindled a terrible chaos within his heart. The chasm of Samath Naur was his timeless hall. Unlike the Balrogs, dragons, or Myron himself, the mountain was Melko's fashioning, and in it was his essence, a rage unyielding that had spewed unsuppressed in the absence of its maker, bellowing a primordial angst against that first gave it life. Alive, it was mightier than the forges of Feanor and Celebrimbor. For four centuries he had woven an elaborate scheme to deceive the elven smiths, a scheme that had come to fruition, and now, uncloaked, he stood before the Urotamin, held within the depths of a ruin. 
Before the making of the world, he had been formless, as the rest of the Ainu, and his Fea was not bound to the limits that the Hroa demanded. There was no concept of control, and his will was free, though dictated intrinsically by that of Eru. This duality was beyond the understanding of the Eruhin. This feeling that one could create out of impulse, out of desire, out of a sense of inherent purpose, yet beyond all perception was driven towards a destination unfathomable. Only the Ainu understood it, and only Melkor gained mastery over it. In order for Myron to replicate this, he too needed to rise once again over the limits of his Froa, to forego sleep and sustenance, to stare in the very essence of his creation and conquer its existence. Order to him was edgeless, seamless, and unblemished perfection. He understood its place in the very propagation of power like a millstone grinding grains or a hand broadcasting seeds in neat rows that would guarantee life. This order had to have a singular source, an elusive, existential oneness, like the one. In his long toiling with the Myrdain, he understood this innately, this need for a one. Myron looked to his own heart. And in it, a life force formed from the alloys of all whom he had served, and all that he had endured. The complexity of Iluvatar, the strength and stubbornness of Aule, and the malice and greatness of Melkor coursed through his intent, swirling as a storm over the first of Drangist. In the gloom of Arordruin, Sauron lifted his arms to conduct the elements into a flawless symphony, part by part, coaxed and woven together, composed to form a harmony of ringcraft greater than anything Feanor and Celebrimbor had ever amounted to. From the depths of Mount Doom, he roused a light unassuaged, purer than his hatred for the Valar, as unadulterated as Telperion, and as unyielding as Lorelin. In that moment he experienced eternity's collapse, clashing and crashing as waves of doom of all the love and hate he bore, reaching into the vastness of the void, stealing their very essences from time, echoes that washed over Melkor and Valinor, their remnants brushing against the estate of Eru himself, and Myron, as he was, let go into this, and visions of dominion over all Arda he imbued into this, and whispers to the other rings he entombed into this. This momentous music to which he was the only audience, a beauty that he wept over in silence, a tragedy that he turned into tempest, a victory that he declared with resounding confidence, pouring it into the mold of the One. Trembling with destiny, he hoisted his ringed forefinger to the thundering sky, a mighty conductor lording from his dark throne, he unleashed the verse to begin the fanfare of his conquest, a threnody of the Eruhin who had defied his call. Across mountains and seas of forests, his voice pierced the minds of all those now beholden to his will, a rhyme that bent them to his reason, a call that made them cry out in terror to the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, bind.